The rest of us, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 5 through 8. Hebrews 2, verse 5. <clears throat> For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we just still ourselves as we think about the high and holy privilege that you've given to us, that we can open up your word and we can hear you speak to us. It is truly a sacred moment. And Father, we thank you for the privilege that you give us of the preaching of your word. And Father, we do pray together that you would overcome the failings of the preacher and that you would oversee your word and that you would transform our lives, that you would fill us with a sense of how you delight in us, and that in knowing that delight, our love for you will grow. We pray for our children and children's worship, and our desire, O oh God, is that they would come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. So move in their hearts. Bless us this day during this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to consider, as, as we get started, the, to remember the purpose of the book of Hebrews and uh, why this exists and why this book is, is written and, and what was the author's intent in, in writing this letter. Uh, we don't necessarily know who, who the author is. People come up with all kinds of speculation. I rest on, well, the author is the Holy Spirit, and that's good enough for me. That's, that's all I need to know. I don't need to know who the earthly author is. That's, that's fine. But it's an author who was writing at a time that was very difficult for Old Testament believers. These are, these are people who are part of the Old Testament church, um, and they had uh, grown up within the Old Testament church, and they'd grown up with the, the rites and rituals of the Old Testament. They'd grown up with the rites and rituals of, of Judaism, and, and that was right and proper, and, and those were the rites and rituals because God had commanded them, and so they were, they were from God. And all of a sudden, they're in this time in which everything's changing. Now, you understand, you who live in central Pennsylvania, just how traumatizing any change can be, Right? Like if they change the timing on a light for like a second, it'll just drive you crazy. I mean, how can we live with... Imagine what it was like for these individuals who also didn't like change to see this dramatic change in their religious life and around their worship of God. It was a very difficult time and they didn't know what to do with Jesus. They believed in him, but they didn't know how it all fit together. And so the author of Hebrews is writing them to tell them, remember, you need to follow Jesus. That throughout everything else that they're facing, the changes that were there, they needed to follow Jesus. And this is what the, the author is trying to get across to them. I want to consider for just a moment, as, by way of our introduction, to look a little bit more closely at verse 5, to just kind of set the tone to understand this passage. He says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. This kind of sets the tone, and Robin and I were talking about this this week, and, and she admitted, she said, well, it's hard to figure out who the he is 
And does it change? You know, who are the different he's as, as we're going through this? Did anybody else find that as we're reading it? Yeah, it's like, who's this talking? Is it talking about Jesus or is it talking about man? And, and that is a, a challenge, and commentators wrestle with that in, in trying to understand that. And one of the jobs of an exegete is to answer questions like that. And, and there are different times which you have to, to come to a passage and you have to say, well, here's, here's, here's what I believe, and, and to make that decision. And so uh, I've, I've done that in, in my own understanding. I'm going to try to help you understand why that was there. I, I believe that it's really talking about uh, mankind, even though it uses the term the son of man um, later on. It's really focusing on mankind is, is who the entire focus of this is. And, and here's why I see that. Uh, first of all, if you remember the creation account as God created man, what did he do? He placed him in authority over all of creation, right? It was what he was to do. He was to take all of creation. He was to, to uh, cultivate it so that it would be fruitful, so it would bring glory unto God. He was to, to raise up his children, that they would be fruitful and that they would glorify God. And so we, we begin to see that element. The other way, way that I see this is when you look at verse 8, he says uh, at the end of it, that we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Now, for me, that, that is, is brought into clearer focus when I remember Matthew 28, 18. Remember the beginning of the Great Commission. Jesus comes up to the disciples and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, it's important to note that that's in the aorist tense, and that means it is a completed action. It already has been given to me, Jesus is saying. So Jesus, in his resurrected form, as he's getting ready to go up to the Father, tells the disciples, all authority has already been given to him in heaven and on earth. Everything has already been subjected to Jesus. So the ones that we don't see it subjected to just yet are us. And so for these reasons, I believe that the passage is, is talking to us and it's describing to us mankind. So the question is, why did God subject the world to man? Why did he do that? And the answer is love. That's why. Because he loved us. And I believe that the flow is such that in, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, the author is trying to remind the, the readers that Jesus is God. So that they understand, he isn't just a prophet. He's not Elijah. He's, he's, he's not uh, the, the prophet who is going to come. He himself is God. And he wants them to understand that. I believe that Hebrews chapter 1 has for us the clearest description of the deity of Jesus anywhere in Scripture. So he's laying that out. And then as he moves into chapter 2, he's going to talk about the fact that Jesus also became a man, fully a man, a human being. And he wants them to understand that. So the flow that he gives it is, in the first four verses, he shows them, he's been showing them that Jesus is God. He's been showing them of the, the validity of the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is true. We need to follow the Old Testament. And he's saying you need to stay the course. You need to keep going. The Old Testament isn't something totally different than the New. It's the foundation for the New. It's, it's where you're going to be going. And it's going to continue to lead you in that right direction. Keep going that way. Only follow Jesus. And he's adding that in. And he's showing that Jesus is the clarification of what uh, God has been doing. And so he's, he's assisting them with that. And then he shows them, you need to stay the course. Remember that God loves us. He loves mankind. And because of his love for mankind, as he goes into the next section, he begins to show how Jesus became a man. 
So this is the, the whole flow. And I know I'm, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is the introduction. And that's right and proper. So that's just so that we begin to understand what he's trying to do. So this section, verses 5 through 8, the author is showing us how much God delights in us. Now, I could preach a message on God delights in man, right? And I think that's good, and that's rich, and that's wonderful. But I believe that if we take it and understand that God's purposes are never just grand, they're also individual, always. That he's always doing things in individual lives. So we can look at this and see, and I want you to take it and to say, God delights in me. And to consider how much he delights in you and what that means. One of the things that it means is that, that he's attentive to you. Look at verse 6. But one is testified somewhere, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? These, these uh, verses, verses uh, 6 through 8 in our text, are actually just a quote from Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 6. And so as, as we look at Psalm 8, and I'll refer to that at different times, it's important for us to, to focus in particular on verse 3 of Psalm 8. Verse 3 tells us the context in which the psalmist first penned the words that we're looking at in our text. Verse 3 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. The psalmist uh, is, is David, and David is looking at the vastness of creation. Maybe he's on a starry night and he's, he's being out there with uh, shepherding the sheep and he looks up or maybe he's out with the armies of uh, the people of God but he's, he's looking up at the stars and he's overwhelmed with just how vast and how magnificent. You know, maybe he's able to see the Milky Way. Maybe he's able to see various constellations and he sees them in the proper order and he recognizes them for what they are and he begins to contemplate as he looks at that and he says, and, and what is man? that you think about us. I mean, God, look at all that. And you're concerned with us. This is astounding to him. If we look at our solar system, when we consider our solar system, and just kind of to put it into uh, uh, grasping sizes, the Earth is the fifth largest uh, planet in our solar system. Even if you whittle it down to, to just the eight that are now... Does anybody else struggle with that? I just have a hard time. There are nine. No, there are eight. And, and it's just hard. But anyway, so if we look at the eight uh, planets that are in our solar system, you, you, you begin to recognize the Earth is the fifth largest. But if you look at the difference between the fourth and the fifth, um, the, the fourth largest is uh, four times the size in the radius of the Earth. Not, not in volume, but just the radius of the, the, the fourth is four times and the first, Jupiter, is 11 times the radius of the radius of the Earth. And we just begin to see that Earth is tiny, right, among our, our, our planets. And then we throw in the sun, and it's just silly, right? All of the planets are just silly at that point. And man is this little speck. Um, and maybe it's uh, from going to Wyoming so many times that you get a sense of how small man can be because you can be there and you see absolutely no other people for vast distances. And there's no one there. And we begin to see, even with the, the billions of people that are on this planet, we haven't come anywhere close to filling it, right? So we're, we're these tiny little specks on this tiny little speck in this vastness of space. Why? 
do you take notice of us, God? Why would you be aware of us? Have you ever held a newborn baby and watched it breathe and been captivated by that? Oh, it's just amazing to hold this child and to see it breathe. I remember when both of my sons were, were born, one of the things I did in sitting in the, the hospital room was just watch them for hours, just breathing, just breathing. It's amazing, isn't it? You've seen me with my granddaughters, right? <laughs> have I told you how much they have me wrapped around their finger? I just, I can watch those girls do the silliest things. Why? Why does that child captivate us? Why do my granddaughters just, just capture my attention, right? It's because I delight in them. It's the love that I have that, that draws my attention and locks it onto them that I just can't look away because I love them so much. Such is God's attentiveness to us that his love is so rich that he puts his attention on us and he is aware of us. Think of the, the love that he describes in, in Hosea chapter 11. In Hosea 11, and I'm going to read verse 7 to give us a, a, a context so we know what, what he's talking about. He says in verse 7, So my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. What's the context? The context is his people... His beloved are rebelling against him and not seeking him and are living with their, with their backs turned to him. And so his response is verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim, which are two uh, uh, cities that, were, that received uh, wrath of God? My heart, this is God speaking, my heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Isn't that a beautiful love song from our Savior? As he, he says, how could I give you up? My compassions are kindled inside me. His heart is turned up in his love for you and for me. He is aware of your life. Look at verse uh, 6 again. What is man that you remember him? Remember the Greek word that's uh, translated as uh, remember, from it we get the word mnemonic. And I use mnemonic because I'm not sure I can pronounce the Greek word. Um, I can't get my lips around the M's and the N's, and the it just doesn't work well. So we'll go with mnemonic, which is hard enough as it is, right? And we all... Rem Wait a minute. Can you remember what mnemonic means? It's that which helps us remember things, Right? We come talk about mnemonic devices. Um, mnemonic devi My favorite mnemonic device is uh, get me grape jelly fast. Get me grape jelly fast. You can remember that, right? Then we look at the, the, the letters. Get me grape jelly fast. G-M-G-J-F. Got it, got it. Okay, so what does that mean? That means grace, man, God, 
Jesus' faith. These are the five points of the evangelism explosion outline. And so when I remember, get me grape jelly fast, I can now remember the gospel message that I need to bring to the lost. And it's a mnemonic device. It helps me remember. And that's the word that God uses here to say that he remembers us. He's aware of us. The, the word that's uh, translated there is used in Luke chapter 23 and verse 42. This is a thief upon the cross who looks to his side and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We think of that in very sterile terms. It was anything but that at the moment in which the man spoke those words. This man had been nailed to a cross because of his own crimes, things that he had done. He was justly being executed by the governing authorities. Even while being executed, he chose to begin to hurl insults at Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory that was beside him. Even in that moment of anguish, his first approach was, I'm going to follow what the crowd is doing. And then somehow the Spirit of God brought a conviction upon him. And he began to realize that it was wrong. And he stood at the defense of Jesus and he said to the other man, don't you even care now at the end? We're justly being killed, but he's done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, as his blood is coming out of his body, as his strength is going, as he knows he is facing his end, he knows that in within moments he is going to leave this life, close his eyes to all that he has known, and what will he open his eyes to? He turns to Jesus and he said, Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I don't know if the thief remembered Psalm 8. where it says, why do you remember man? I do know Jesus remembered it. And Jesus looks at him and says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. In other words, he says, I must remember you. And I will. Imagine the comfort that that brought into his life. Remember our trip to uh, Malawi in 2007. We were uh, teaching at African Bible College and we had the opportunity to go, I believe it was Wednesday night, uh, Bible study every week. And one of the Bible studies, they didn't do a Bible study, but they played a video from a church back in California that had done fundraising uh, for the college and for its clinic. Um, they have a clinic, a part of the college that is very similar, and it just does a, a, a great work there, um, because talk about uninsured, um, like the entirety of the nation of Malawi virtually, um, and so they're, they're trying to care for the people who are there, and it's just a, a great work, and, and this uh, church had decided, well, let's do some fundraising for African Bible College and, and the clinic. And so they had, they had children who would do bake sales. They had other people who would do work projects. They were doing all this stuff to raise this, this money, and they'd raised $500,000 for the college. It was amazing, just, just an astounding amount of money that they had, they had raised and put together for, for this. And, and as we're watching this, I mean, we're moved, and we're thinking, that's kind of cool. We'd been there probably about a month and, and thinking, yeah, well, that's, that's pretty intense. But we're looking around, and all of the missionaries are just weeping. 
And I'm thinking, it's a great thing, but it's really not that moving. And you know me. I mean, like, you, you barely got to blink, and I'm going to start crying. And, and there I was, and, I'm, and it's, I'm not quite that moved. And I'm thinking, gosh, has my heart died? What's happened to me? And I asked someone, and, and one of the missionaries said, it isn't so much the money that they raised, but they said, particularly at that time, the feeling was for a missionary that when you got on the field, there got, came a point where you were pretty sure the people back home had forgotten you. This is why it's so important that we continue to send those cards to our missionaries. And I thought, wow. And yet here in this passage we have before us the promise that he will never forget, but he will remember us. He remembers us. Now you know in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, the same word is used again. And in Hebrews 8.12, he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31, and he says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. God could have remembered our sins and forgotten us, couldn't he? But he chose to do it the other way around. He remembers you, and he forgets all of your sins. That's a tremendous gift from the one who knows all things. So he's aware of your life. He remembers. And he watches over your life. We look back at uh, chapter 2, verse 6. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Concerned is uh, the word from which we get episcopal. Um, it means epi is uh, over and scopos or scopto means uh, to see. You know, we talk about a microscope is to see small or a telescope is to see the end. And it's that, that combination to see over, to oversee. It's used of elders that our job is to oversee. And that's to, to watch over. It's more than just, just seeing it, right? It's the idea that God is unceasingly watching what's happening in your life. That he sees everything. Now I think sometimes we take that idea and we, we turn it on its head. Um, John Henry Jowett is a, uh, is a man that I call my mentor, even though I've never met him. Um, as I left seminary, I was given one of his books, uh, the Preacher, His Life and Works. Uh, he was uh, the beginning of the 20th century and uh, pastored, actually, one of the places he pastored was Westminster Chapel, where the Westminster uh, Standards were written. Um, but he also served in the United States, and he gave a series of lectures to seminary students and uh, that has just been a, a, a faithful minister. And when I find my, my soul thirsting frequently, I will read something from Jowett, and it just gives me a perspective and a strength as I'm seeking to minister. He's been a tremendous benefit in my life. And he writes about this concept of God seeing us. He writes, The Lord's eyes survey the secrets of the inner life. That great truth has frequently been taught as though it were only a fearful thing and clothed in unrelieved gloom. We have thought of those searching eyes as the eyes of a policeman and not the eyes of a lover. We have regarded them as intent on looking for unlovely things and not for things that are lovely. They are the eyes of suspicion rather than of trust. They are dross finders rather than gold finders. And so the great truth has been perverted. Certainly, there are aspects of the truth which ought to move us to serious disquietude. 
But there are other aspects which should inspire us with joy. The Lord looks upon the heart and he sees the hidden fault. But he also sees the precious things which he puts among his jewels. I think that slight shift in perspective is helpful for us. To recognize his eyes are on us in a shepherding, overseeing way. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 36, we have the, the parable of the sheep and the goats, and as uh, the, the sheep are separated from the goats, and, and remember Jesus is the great judge, and, and he says to one, you know, I was sick and you didn't care for me, and the other, but you, I was sick and you cared for me, and he made that distinction. Um, I imagine this is something that at Catalasso you talk about on, on regular uh, occasion. But the word uh, that we're talking about is used there, and I'm going to read verse 35 and 36. Verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. There's our word. I was in prison, and you came to me. I was sick, and you visited me. The word is translated as visited there, and it's the same word to uh, look over. Episcoptos. That's the word that's used at that point. Visited. Now, what does it mean? So when he talks about, I was sick and you visited me, does he, is he, is he have in mind that there he was in his sick bed uh, near death and people came in and said, hey, Jesus, we're here, love you, pray for you, off they go. Is that what he's talking about? The, uh, the pastoral patent pray? Is that what he's talking about? Or is he talking about they came in and they saw him in his sick bed and they caressed his head and they placed the cold cloth upon his fevered brow. And they took the warm broth and they were able to feed that into him that he might regain his strength. And they cared for his wounds, changed his bandages, and cared for him. That is what visited means, doesn't it? That's the word that he says that he is concerned with us. He visits us. He cares for us. It's not just a matter of looking. It's a matter that he is aware of what is going on in our life and he is caring for us and assisting us. Does that, the idea that he is attentive to us, that he's aware of our life and that he watches over our life, doesn't that give you comfort? Thank you, Lord. Doesn't it also develop in you a deep affection for him? It's like, that's, that's the one I want to devote my whole life to. I want to be near him rather than anyone else. Because he is the one who has so cared for me. He remembers me. And he's concerned for me. He's attentive to my life. He delights in you, which means he's attentive, but it also means that he crowns you. He crowns you. Verse 7. You've made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. Most commentators spent all of their time focusing on the term, made him a little lower than the angels. And they spent all of their time on that. Many never even mentioned the rest of the verse. Even though... Only one-third of it deals with that. Two-thirds deal with the other side. 
And so it's interesting that that tends to be where our focus is, of looking at that he's a little lower than the angels. Now, some of it is because uh, many commentators have decided, oh, this is about Jesus, and so it's, they're trying to show how, how Jesus is, is below the angels, and they really wrestle with what that means, because how is he below the angels? That's not the case. He didn't quit being God. That's not it. And so they'll talk about spatial and, and begin to work through that. And that's a part of why I'm not sure that's what it's uh, talking about. Then those who believe that it's talking about man will talk about you know, how wretched man is and just spend a whole lot of time on, on the wretchedness of man. But as you read this, doesn't the focus seem to be on something different? As you read it from Psalm 8, you see that the focus is somewhere different. The focus isn't on he made him a little lower than the angels. That's just used for comparative purposes. The focus is on he crowned them with glory and honor. That's what he wants to emphasize. That's what he wants to draw our attention to. This magnificent thing which he has done in crowning us. He says he crowns him with glory. The word crown is a word that's used in uh, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. Uh, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win. That is, he is not crowned with the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And there are two different words in Greek that can be used for crown. One of them is the diadem, which is the royal crown that goes upon the head of the king. Lord Jesus is crowned with that one. The other one has two senses. One is it's the crown of victory. That's the crown that you get as you win the prize. And the other element of that is the crown of status. You're not the king, but, but you're up there, right? And this is the crown that's used in this case, from which the word Stephen comes. Um, it's the, the, the root word is crown. And he's saying to us that he has given to us this crown of victory, of glory and honor, of our exalted status as his children. What a wonderful crown that he's given to us. He gives you glory. He gives you glory. Glory, in, in, in probably the most practical sense, is any time in which we reflect God. If we turn our eyes back to heaven and we think about, you know how bright the moon can be, right? Right? Um, and it was one of the things that was always cool in the mountains of Colorado when I was in seminary in, in uh, the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, and I loved it after a, a snowfall. And uh, it, we're overcast a lot here in the winter. That's not the case in, in much of Colorado. It'll snow, and then the skies will be clear. And so we'd have a clear sky, a full moon, and the ground covered with snow, and it's like daylight. You can read. You can drive. No problem. Because it is that bright. All from the, the brightness of the moon, which has no light source of its own, right? It's just dust reflecting the sun. So the moon, in a real sense, glorifies the sun. He crowns us with glory. How did he make us? He made us in his own image and likeness. He made man so that every human being is crowned with glory. Every human being reflects something of God by being in His image. That means the unborn twins, at the moment that they came in, at that tender moment when their life was at risk, they reflected God. They were the image of God. And it's important for us 
to recognize that. And I think for, for me to be able to see the glory of God and the people around me is an essential part of my life. If I'm going to love my brother as myself, I've got to see them as the image of God. I've got to see that they've been crowned with glory. I must focus upon that crown of glory and allow that to be the focus of my eyes. When I look at the unborn, when I look at the elderly, when I look at those who wrestle with handicaps and dis- uh, disabilities, that they too have the very image of God. When I look at the person of a different faith, when I look at the person who is bound and determined to oppose Jesus Christ, I must still look at that person as the image of God and recognize that their sin is hindering them from fully glorifying Him, but it doesn't take away that they are the image of God. But my hope is that by helping them be reconciled to Jesus Christ, they will be able to reflect Him more fully. But I still see in them the glory of God. They are crowned with glory. I need to see that they are crowned with glory with the person who is in the other political party from me. And I speak of that because we, we live in an age and, and in a day in which political parties are not just different parties with different ideologies. They are now hated enemies. And that's how it has been within our society and that's how it is growing within our church. And we as the people of God must stand against that. And the way to stand against that is to look at that person in the other party as the image of God. And to recognize They may even be believers. And you see how hard it is even for us to believe that sometimes, that a person in the other party could actually be a Christian. And it's something we wrestle with and we should not. But as we begin to see them as the image of God, we now, as the church of Jesus Christ, begin to set the pattern that must take place in this nation if we're going to begin to see peace begin to reign within this nation. If we're going to be able to see anything like that happen, it has to begin with the people of God. Because we're the only ones who can see the glory of God in the other person. We're the only ones who know that it's there. And so we must set that standard. We must be the first to cross that. Why? Because He crowns us with glory. And He also shows you honor. Honor. Interesting word, right? Honor. We think about the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And what honor means depends on whether or not you're a father or a child, right? As a parent, honor means obey every word I ever speak or thought I ever think. Right? That's it. We got it. Agreed, and you have to because I'm the father, so therefore I get to determine that, right? And that's, but if you're, if you're a child, usually a teenager is where that begins, or an adult child, you kind of have a different sense of what that might mean, right? And I think you're right. A central element to the idea of honor is trust. Think about that for a moment. A three-year-old needs to honor parents by obedience, right? And that obedience is, is really an expression of trust, isn't it? Because doesn't the parent know you shouldn't stick your finger in the outlet, right? The parent knows that and the child trusts them and says, well, they know such things. Electricity is beyond my vocabulary, let alone my understanding of science. So therefore, I trust mom and dad love me, so I'm going to obey. But a 25-year-old 
is dealing with it in a different way. And mom and dad give them counsel, and the 25-year-old takes serious consideration of what they've been told, right? Why? Because they trust mom and dad that they know and they love them. And you see, that's how you make that transition to where you're, you're still honoring mom and dad, but you're not obeying every word immediately. This is the idea of trust. Think about when dad has the keys to his car and he hands them over to his 16-year-old and says, I want you to have a great time tonight. I trust you to be careful, to make good choices, and to enjoy yourself. Go for it. You're a good young man. What has the father just done for that child? Can you think of a greater honor to a 16-year-old? Yeah, because the father has trusted the child and said, you got this. I'm not afraid of you on the roads because you've shown that you make good choices. And that becomes a, a source of honor that that child lives up to. Take that idea. And remember, it isn't us honoring God. It's not us trusting God. He crowns you with honor. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. He said that to us. I'd have sent angels. I'm just saying. If I'm in Jesus' spot, I'm looking at my disciples and I'm saying, nah, I'm going to send the angels. <laughs> much, much more likely they're going to get this done properly, right? right? And, and, and... But that's not what he chose. He chose you. He chose me to take this gospel around the world. Why? Because he trusts you. And he trusts his spirit at work in you. And he honors his church in that way, does he not? To recognize and to grasp that honor, that we are crowned with honor. He has shown us honor. He is attentive to you. He crowns you. And he will make you reign. Verse 8. You have put all things, in, I'm sorry, verse 7, the end of it, and have appointed him over the works of your hands, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. In Genesis one twenty six, we see God's intention. Here's man and woman created, and God gives them their task, which is to rule over all of creation, right? He's trying to cover everything, right? Uh, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the, all the earth. Oh yeah, and let's remember the creepy things that creep on the earth, right? Even over spiders. All of it, okay? It's been given to us. It's what he has done. But what happened? With sin, there became an opposition. Now it became a battle. Now, Creation wasn't following the lead, right? All of a sudden, we're, it's not subject to us anymore. All of a sudden, we're kind of under it. Isn't that what he says to Adam with, with the, the curse? He says, well, you're still going to be able to get bread from the ground, but 
it's going to be by the sweat of your brow, and you're going to have thorns and thistles you've got to deal with as well. So it's not going to come up so easily. Now you're going to be in opposition. You have problems. But the great message of reconciliation, the great message of salvation, is that God is going to change that, and there will be that day when it will work well, when the opposition will be taken away, when we'll see Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, lived out in our midst and in our eyes, in which he said, you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And we look for that day. But how will he make us reign? Well, first, by raising us up. Look at verse 7. And you've appointed him over the works of your hand. It's God who's raised us up to that place. It's God who has lifted us up to be in that position of authority. And we think of God raising us up. I just want to think about the trajectory of our salvation, the way that God has worked in our lives. To do that, I want us to consider the four estates of man. And the first estate is a state of innocence, and that is before sin came into the world, when we were created, we were created with the possibility that we could sin. It was possible that we could indeed sin against God. That's where we were created. And then when we fell, fallen man, it's not possible to not to sin. It's not possible not to sin. That's where we found ourselves outside of Christ. That's where we were before we were saved, so that all of our righteous deeds were as filthy rags before God, that it wasn't possible for us to not sin. But when Jesus Christ comes into our lives, when the Spirit of God gives us life and regenerates us and works in us conversion of of faith and repentance and justifies us and adopts us, something very real takes place and we are changed our estate then changes to one in which what seemed before impossible is now there, that it is now possible in every situation to not sin. Sorry, I keep saying that wrong. I'm splitting my infinitive. Forgive me. It is possible not to sin in every situation. This is a remarkable thing. That's the situation we find ourselves in, but yet we still have sin that we're wrestling with, so sometimes we do still sin, But we've got that, but we long for that fourth estate in which it is not possible to sin. And one day that will be ours. One day we will receive that. One day we will live in that. But we're not there yet. But we look for that. Do you see the trajectory and what God is doing? It isn't a matter that he just says, okay, well, you're worthless uh, dust. uh, I'll just let you rule. You're still worthless dust, but just go ahead and rule. Now you're ruling worthless dust, right? That isn't what he does at all. No, he transforms us. He changes. He makes us worthy of reigning. It's what we see in Ephesians 2, 6, and 7 from our uh, uh, declaration of pardon this morning, that he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace, his grace which is powerful in our lives in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what he has done. He raises us up, then he subjects creation to us. Verse 8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. He subjects, which is the the Greek word hupatasso, which means to place under. Um, He places creation under our feet. What does that mean? Creation is under our authority, which means we're, we're not usurpers when we exercise dominion. And we need to be certain that we're not tyrants, that we're not oppressing creation but they're reigning over it in justice and righteousness according to the law and the work of God. To begin to make that a part of what we're doing, he puts it in subjection. But he does so only in Christ. 
He says, but we do not yet see all things subjected to him. We've already looked at Matthew uh, 28, 18, which tells us, Jesus says, but all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to him. If it's been given to him, how are we going to exercise it? We're going to exercise it in him. It is through our union with Christ that we begin to exercise that authority. It is by our relationship with him. It is by the fact that we are in Christ that we are able to exercise proper authority over creation. It is that, that inseparable union which occurs through faith. Have you experienced that? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? I guess I want to move that beyond just a, a casual question. I want to exhort you to believe that Jesus has died for your sins. This day, if you never have, today's the day God's calling. Give your life to him. Turn and say, Lord Jesus, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me because of your death on the cross. And then receive the forgiveness that he offers. And then you find yourself united to Christ and awaiting that day when you will reign with him. A woman at one point was complaining to her husband and saying, you don't say I love you. And he looks at her like most men and says, but, but I told you I loved you when we got married and I'd tell you if anything ever changed. Needless to say, she wasn't really satisfied with that answer, right? And rightly so. Um, I, that's one of the things that's nice is we have things like anniversaries and birthdays and, and I think Valentine's Day was sh- thrown in because men just don't find enough opportunities on their own to tell their wives that they love them. And so we got Valentine's Day and, and it's just different ways in which we are reminded to tell our spouse we love them, right? It's what we do. And so we, we utilize that. Sometimes I think we can look at Scripture and we can look at our relationship with God and we feel like he told us he loved us when we got saved, John 3.16, but then since then, we just have to remember that he doesn't change. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think when we begin to look at Scripture, we begin to see that it's replete with reminders of how much he loves us and how he delights in us and how you as an individual are the joy of his heart. And so I want to encourage you to think of that as we look at this passage. I think that the author of Hebrews wanted the, the readers and the Spirit of God wanted us to see in this that Jesus became man, but my friends, he did so because he delights in you. He delights in you so much that he's attentive to you. He delights in you so much that he crowns you. And he delights in you so much that he will make you reign. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you help us to apprehend the reality of your delighting in us. Not in us, but in me in each one of us individually. I pray for this congregation that you will grant us such a vision and such a confidence and such a certainty that we may live as those in whom you find delight. 
And that from that place, O oh God, that we might be your instruments of peace in this world. That as we've been reminded today, as you've given us that, that uh, ministry of reconciliation, that we'll be involved in that. And that through your delight in us, men, women, and children across this world will come to know you as their Savior. Would you do this for the glory of Jesus? Amen.